I'm Tim Burrows. Today's guest is Will Hayward, CEO of one of the most proudly independent publishing operations in Australia, Private Media. The most famous brand in the private media portfolio is Crikey. Also in the family are public service title The Mandarin, Smart Company, and the newest edition, Inc. Magazine. Will Hayward's personal profile rose dramatically after he became the face of Crikey's defamation battle with Lachlan Murdoch. In our conversation, he talks candidly about the personal effects of being part of that battle. I began by asking him about Crikey's evolving business model. I mean, I guess there's an answer in particular, and then there's an answer in general. With Crikey, we're currently about 95% funded by our readers. That is good for us as a business because, as you know, Tim, subscription revenue is very dependable. Um, you don't get huge fluctuations month to month. So we are, if we were to only choose one revenue stream for that one particular product, it would be subscriptions. And so we're, we're delighted to have revenue that is growing and dependable and, and, and one on which you can build a proper news organization. So that would be my my response to the specific question on Crikey. In general, across the industry, I think diversified revenue is, is really important. So Brian Morrissey, former editor and founder, I believe, of Digiday, was asked once, what is the ideal revenue stream? And his response was many. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think as a, as a media organization, media traditionally is a, a fairly low margin industry. Now there are um, organizations like the New York Times or products like the AFR, which are, I believe, fairly high yield or high margin, I should say. Um, I think as a smaller independent outfit, it's very important that we have diversified revenue so that we can experience all the upside of advertising when the economy is good and strong and, and there are lots of people out there spending. But also, when times are tougher, as they are now, you also have other revenue streams that you can turn to. So happy that Crikey's uh, mostly made up of subs. We intend to grow the advertising revenue. We intend to look at other ways that we can monetize the journalism and make it more, even more sustainable, even more profitable, in order that we can invest more in the, the mission that we believe in. But at the moment, it is predominantly subscriptions. I, and I'm I'm surprised that that ninety five percent number. I mean, I'm 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 probably jealous as well because you know that means that the subscriptions are healthy. But does that suggest that um, you you you? What's a good way of putting the question? Um, that suggests to me that you're probably leaving money on the table at the moment when it comes to advertising. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's really when I joined the company three years ago the. One of the main things I was really obsessed about was focus. We had a, we had three strong brands. We now have four. At that point, we had three strong brands that we were proud of that were doing really important work on the journalism side. Whilst I was proud of what we were doing then, I think what we're doing now is even better. But but we had good products. What we didn't have was a good commercial underpinning for all of that. So the company uh, wasn't profitable and wasn't growing and so we worked very the, the first thing we did was really focus on what we were good at 
And in Crikey's instance, it was journalism that people were prepared to pay for. Now, we've worked very hard at that over the last, as I said, over the last three years, and the outcome has been um, almost trebling of the subscription numbers. So that, that has had a huge impact on what we can invest in and what we can do on the journalism side. On advertising within the group, advertising has also grown yeah, extensively, uh, more than doubled over that three-year period. The reason why we've not done so much with Crikey on advertising really is a function of being able to find excellent talent. So the, the, the journey over the last few years, in some senses, I can describe it in terms of tech stack and marketing stack and UX and products and, and all these things that I, I imagine we might get to. But really, it's been a journey from a company that had fantastic staff, but on the commercial side, I, I would have said there was an excess of what I call well-intentioned generalists. So people who really believed in the mission of what we were doing and had some understanding of a variety of commercial fields to what we have now, which is a high, very high talent density organization full of specialists. So to pick one example, Kev, who runs our growth and marketing area, uh, I mean, he's really, he's somewhere between a sort of jerd and a, a, jerd, a, a um, jock and a nerd. Uh, he looks like, and I'm sure he could pick you up and drop you in your head. He, he used to play rugby at a fairly high level. Uh, but he can program in six languages, he's got an MBA, he, he did a degree in robotics. So um, uh, it, so, so we've worked very hard at taking this organization from, from one that really cared about journalism, but didn't necessarily know how to work on digital products and monetize them properly, to one where more often than not in the room, I know the least about the technical details of what we're talking about. Now, on the sales side, that has meant a real commitment to only hiring people that we think are fantastic at what they do. And I think in all the functions that we look at, sales is potentially the one that, that has the greatest um, margin of error. Like it, it, you can often interview someone, think they're good, and it turns out that they're not so good. We have been very disciplined on the sales hiring side. And the outcome of that has been that when we find great sellers and we think they can make a big impact, we normally put them on the Mandarin or Smart Company because those are products with a uh, more clearly defined audience, higher CPM, uh, and uh, add categories that we, we believe we have a leadership position in. So like in pretty much every quarterly board get together, someone says, why aren't we doing more ads for the Crikey? And I have failed. Like I always say this quarter, we, we do intend to do more. And then we go and find someone like Steph or, or Justine, who we recently added to the smart company team. And we just think, look, I think there's probably more damage they can do on the smart company side. So let's put them there or, or, or the Mandarin side. We recently hired another great set for the Mandarin. So I think there is money left on the table and we are working at that. We're in discussions. And I think, I mean, I hope we we make greater noise. Um, there's also a sort of philosophical point, which is Crikey is all about holding power to account. It's a slightly kind of cliche term. 
Well, I tell you what we'll do is I think we'll come back to Crikey in a few minutes because I have a bit of a sense that once we start talking about Crikey, that's where we'll we'll probably end up focusing. And one of one of the other points I definitely want to to pick up when we do was your point about um, uh, tripling subscription revenues as well because that's interesting. So I so I I I, I, I am going to come back to that point. Let's firstly just get a sense um, though of the wider private media business. Um, how big is the company now? Um, I guess key things, um, uh, how many staff, roughly what's the turnover? Is there anything you can say about profitability? Yeah, so we've got about 55 staff. Uh, that hasn't increased significantly over the last three years. So as I described already, we've had fairly extraordinary revenue growth um, last quarter ruined this quote that I used to like giving a lot internally into candidates and investors, which is that we'd had 11 consecutive quarters of not only growth, but record revenue. So almost three years ago, we had our best quarter ever. And every single quarter since then was the best quarter we've ever had. Unfortunately, that that ended last quarter due to the challenges in the ad market. Um, the business, but, but, but that has that revenue growth with cost discipline on hiring has resulted in us moving from not a sustainable organization to now being a very sustainable organization. So we are profitable, though um, it's hard to talk about profit publicly. I'm, I'm tempted to, but I don't think we probably can. Turnover is low double-digit millions. So uh, that has, as I said, it's actually more than tripled over three years. So... Um, so yeah, about 55 people, low double digits and, and profitable. So revenue breakdown, we're about 35% ads, 10% events and 55% subs. We we do want to further diversify that revenue. So we think there are three ways that you can really drive margin in a media business. Um, and the test for each of these is if none of the others change, does this deliver additional margin? So the first and most obvious one is audience growth. If we, for example, doubled the size of the email list for the smart com- for smart company, but our CPM stayed the same and everything else stayed the same, the business would be more profitable because we would be able to sell advertising, more advertising, and we would be able to convert more. Like if if four percent of smart company free subscribers convert to being a paid subscriber if the email list grows you get more paid subscribers so audience growth is a is a thing that we obsess over and think about a lot and are obviously very very focused on the second one is and this is a bit of a misnomer but arpu so average revenue per user sorry thank you average revenue per user so if our email lists stay exactly the same size or our traffic stays exactly the same size but our average revenue per user increases, then obviously we become more profitable. Now, there are two ways to increase that general category of ARPU. One is improved existing revenue operations. So let's say smart company sells on average at a $30 CPM. If we make improvements to our UX, if we make improvements to our first party data, and that gets that CPM from $30 to $40, then clearly the, the business becomes more profitable, assuming you haven't spent a lot or hired four product people to make those changes to CPM, the CPM. So first is exist, improvements to existing revenue lines. The second category of improved ARPU 
is genuine revenue diversification. So if we currently drive the sustainability of our journalism through advertising and subscriptions for the Mandarin, and then we add a new revenue line, which is paid attendance for events. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to potentially get very boring about this stuff when I go into too much detail. No, no, get, get as in the weeds as you want. You know, this is a business podcast. Like with events, at the beginning, I said that we make about 10% of our revenue from our events and 35% from ads. Another way of framing that really is we make about 45% of our revenue from sponsorships. So I, I, I softly count that as revenue diversification. However, it's really the same people spending money with you in a different way. And so it's not as compelling as subs, the difference between subs and ads. Now, the business that we are currently building is paid attendance to events or award fees for events. Now, that is genuine revenue diversification because Cisco don't shift money from sponsoring a podcast to paying for their staff to come to an event. Uh, and therefore, that should further insulate your business from buffeting in the economy and drive genuine incremental revenue. Yeah, that makes sense. And just before um, we, we, we we go off the kind of the wider picture for the company, I'll um, just try and um, zero in a little bit without holding you to a number. So I, I you know, I, I, I know you talk to people who sort of say, you know, any business should be running on a kind of 20% return on sale, which is... I think quite unusual for media companies. So I, I kind of think maybe 10% is a better number um, or, or a more realistic number. Given what you've said so far, I'm guessing you're delivering a return on sale somewhere between 10% and 20%. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, our, our group operating margin is somewhere within that region. I don't want to comment too much about the specifics. The way that we think about it more often, which actually brings me to the third operating principle. So the first one I talked about is audience growth. So if you grow audience, you should improve margin. The second one was if you can improve the amount of money that you can make from each individual audience member, you'll become more profitable. The third one is operating leverage. So we have invested fairly aggressively, as I said, in trying to make private media an excellent media business. And by that, I mean having a fixed a, a what does a great digital product look like how do we take a anonymous ip that lands on one of our websites convert it into an email subscriber and then ultimately convert it into well sorry the genuine the real journey is of value is anonymous ip lands on website you then get some sort of identifying data about them uh you then extract first party data or zero party data or whatever so you can monetize them better or and also deliver a better experience to them and then at some point try and actually get them to subscribe and then retain them for as long as possible and figure out the right price to charge them there are within a media organization i think there are a bunch of things that are incredibly uh, subjective and hard to build fixed processes around so for example the investigative journalism that crikey does you can never automate that there's no fixed view on it you need to hire incredibly talented journalists who care deeply about their patches and are willing to go out there and excuse my slightly clumsy language cause trouble like they need to get into things and figure out what's really going on and then have a willingness to publish those things 
So that's the sort of subjective part of our business. There, what media businesses, in my opinion, have been very bad at historically is treating a whole category of things that are deterministic as being artistic. Can you explain so what you mean? I've well. sat in rooms. Well, so I've sat in rooms and had groups of people come in and say, we figured out what our email should look, our EDM product should look like, what our newsletter product should look like. And we don't want to have um, blue links anymore. We want people to experience it within the email, et cetera, et cetera. Or a bunch of like very uh, sort of defendable views on, on what it should look like. And then they file out of a room and a different group of people come in and go, we figured out the way to do it and it should be like this. And actually, whilst there probably is some variance between categories, my, I agree with Industry Dive. So Industry Dive is a US-based trade publisher who have said, look, sure, plumbing is different to finance, but a good homepage is a good homepage. And even if there is some difference between the way that finance people want to consume content and plumbing people want to consume content, that difference is pretty small. And the sort of marginal upside of losing hours and weeks and years in a room of having subjective discussions about what this should look like and why it should be totally different is significantly outweighed by the clarity of purpose of going, well, look, this gets us 90% of the way there and we're going to do it like this across everything. And so within the center of the company, we are working very, very hard to build what we consider to be a great media product and make great media experience, irrespective of the category we operate in, and then deploy that across all of our, all of our products. And so the obvious question after that, which I hadn't actually planned to talk about today, is if you have built a really good product and growth strategy, irrespective of the category, why apply it to only four things? So private media is currently thinking about what inorganic growth might look like in the future, but we don't, we don't have anything to announce today. Well, look, I can't, I can't leave that opening alone, though. So I, I do have to uh, at least ask the follow-up question. When we talk about inorganic growth, as in, you know, growing beyond the existing products, um, I guess that then opens up the question to the two most obvious ways of doing that are either launching in new categories or acquiring in new categories. Is there an appetite for both? It's absolutely an appetite for both. So there's a few different ways to talk about this and we've obviously thought about it a great deal so inorganic growth so acquiring new things we think that there are a number of niche categories out there where you have a journalist so the the sort of identifying characteristics of things that that private media believes could have a great future. Uh, they operate in an information dense category. So a, a key thing is, um, I mean, Tim, you and I, like you're doing a great thing already, but, but to ignore what you're doing currently, you and I couldn't go out and set it up tomorrow. So health tech weekly, like unless you've been hiding the secret passion of yours from me, Tim, uh, that is something that is very hard to understand and you need to be a real category expert in that. So 
the category needs to be information dense. I don't think the future of media is more BuzzFeed. I don't think it's more Vices. I think those products are really, really hard to build and run in a sustainable way. And, and clearly the market has shown that to be true as well with Vice going bankrupt and BuzzFeed currently trading, I believe, at something like a third of its revenue. So absolutely, 100%. I am very passionate about boring categories. And by boring categories, I mean things outside of the people outside of that category think it's boring. People within the category are obsessed with how much information there is in that is within that category. So it needs to be information dense. It needs to be sufficiently big that it can support an advertising product and a subscription product at the very least, if not also an events product. And then there are sort of softer um, likely characteristics. So it's likely to be run by someone not from a commercial background. So it's likely to be run by a, a journalist rather than someone who's decided to go into it because they, they think there's money there. And it's likely to, as a result, not have any of the things that we're building. So it's likely to be absent a good product experience. It's likely to have too many ads on the homepage and they've got really bad viewability. It's likely to have probably tried to launch a subscription product, but when you try and take out a sub, it's really painful and the user journey is awful. Because then we can look at it and go, well, look, there's something here of real value. If you plug it into the, um, I mean, in an extremely painful CEO way, I've referred to it internally as private media OS, like the operating systems that we're building. If you plug this thing into that, then it should unlock significant value. The downside of, of acquisitions are that, I mean, all the literature shows that historically they fail. M&A as a category is widely regarded, and there's some debate about this, but the, the consensus among the commentariat is that it's been shareholder destructive, or it's destroyed more shareholder value than it's created. So people like me uh, end up with an appetite to grow. We go out and buy things because it, 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 it sort of complements our own ego, and it, it, it's hard to generate a genuine return. So, so the question is always, why are we not the norm? Uh, and so whilst philosophically and intellectually we're very interested in M&A and we think that there is a, a, a way to build a much bigger media organization by going out and acquiring these smaller titles that operate in niche categories, and I suspect we probably will do some of that, we need to be extremely disciplined in the execution of it. The, the media company that has, has most obviously done it very well is Future. Future... I believe seven years ago had something like 80 titles and was running at a fairly significant loss. They now have, I believe, about 350 titles and are running at about 30% margin. So there is a way to do it. You just need to be have an extraordinarily good team who can be very disciplined in their execution. I believe we have that team. I think we have the best management team in the industry right now. So we'll, we'll see what we can get done in that space. The other side, as you say, is looking at um, launching things within the categories that we're, we are already active in. We are very focused on that. I've already talked about revenue diversification. We will, that is more likely to be the focus and you'll probably see just sort of probabilistically, you're, you're more likely to see activity from private media on that side in the next six to 12 months. 
Well, in a moment, we'll dive into those categories. I'm going to try one more time with my fishing exercise around profitability as well, because I, 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 I think I heard you accept my proposition that um, uh, return on sale might be somewhere between 10 and 20%. And I think you've already said that turnover is above 10 million which suggests you have hit a profitability level of comfortably a million dollars plus. Is that a fair assumption I've made so far? I'm, I'm not going to question the underlying math, but I am going to um, decline to comment on the returns that we're generating shareholders. But we're, we're, we're a profitable organization. But it's also tough. Right now, we've had a lot of success. We have grown... I suspect probably more than any, certainly any than, than any publicly listed business. Now it's easier to grow a small revenue number than it is a kind of multi-billion dollar revenue number. So that's a bit of a kind of false brag. But we have grown a lot. However, the ad, ad market is tough. The the company as a whole grew, um, as I've said already, uh, I mean, compound annual growth over the last four years, about 19%. Reader revenue grew fairly aggressively year on year last year, more than 20%. Um, however, advertising advertising was very strong at H1, FY2 through, two, three. Uh, H2 was tough. We now think it's recovering, but I don't know what that recovery looks like, and it will eat into margins. So it is it, it, it has never been easy to run a media business. We have hired many people from outside of media. They come in. What they bring is a huge amount of knowledge outside of our category, which I'm very proud of. And we're always excited to bring those people in because often they know more about those deterministic things I referred to. Though without full within six months, they say to me, it's really hard to make profit in in, in media. And, and I, I agree. Well, let's dive into some of the categories um, and just sort of uh, may- maybe if, if you can just sort of quickly talk talk me through how you're, you're thinking about each of the products. Um, let's start with Smart Company. Smart Company is a great business. So the central insight of Smart Company uh, is that I think the high end of town is fairly well looked after. The AFR outside of the products that we currently own is probably my favorite Australian media product. It is. It has strong revenue diversification. It has extraordinary journalism, and it, and and it has some of the best journalists in the country. Uh, however, the AFR is very clearly catered to the high end of town. It's catered for asset managers, big corporates, all those sorts of things. Smart companies' insight is the the Australian economy is a lot bigger than that, and I would say what the AFR done has done very well is capture what on a per head count is the most valuable part of the market. But in terms of volume, they've probably captured 5% of, of the total business market in Australia. Smart company is about everything else. Smart company is about what we call the real economy. So those people who are shipping products and services that are consumed by people all over Australia, but aren't necessarily currently sitting on billion dollar enterprises. To dig into the, the specifics of the business model, Smart Company is currently the reverse of Crikey in that uh, about 90% plus, 90 to 95% of its revenue comes from what I referred to earlier in this conversation as sponsorship revenue. So 
advertising and events. We have succeeded in diversifying that revenue. So three years ago, we would have said that 95% of revenue was just straight advertising. So someone phones up a salesperson and buys an ad on the website. Now, uh, about 10% of that revenue, actually more, uh, it's closer probably to about 20% because it's, it's changing very quickly, is coming from events sponsorship and in uh, Q1, the quarter we're currently in, so Q1 FY24, we will be launching some paid for events products where the revenue doesn't come from sponsorship. The, the revenue comes from attendance or entrance. And these sponsors and advertisers, I mean, the, the obvious categories feel to me things like telcos, banks, um, organisations that want to speak to small and medium enterprises broadly? Yeah, absolutely. So some of our, I mean, I probably don't want to talk about what our favourite advertisers are, but but they are the ones you can imagine. So AWS, Salesforce, all, all these kinds. I, I promised to be as honest as I could in this interview. Uh, that Those categories clearly have had a tough time over the last year. So we've seen lots of technology companies move from uh, high growth investment stages to the stock market wanting them to focus more on profitability as a result many of them have been more cautious in their marketing spend now it is our belief that our products are sufficiently good that that we can prove to them a return on their investment and so to a certain extent we have been insulated from from a downturn in advertising but it, it has been it's been tough like definitely tough and it it, it focuses our mind on how we can continue to innovate around advertising in a way that even in the toughest of times, we are the last one to come off the media plan. And to put that in, in more concrete terms, we are halfway through a fairly significant investment in, in our products. We will unveil some new products to the market in the coming months. And, and, and about 80% of that focus really has been on the customer side, so the audience side. So improving site traffic, uh, site recirculation, improving user journeys to subscription, uh, improving search, all of these sort of things that don't necessarily directly impact on advertising beyond the fact that they will generate more audience. But we are also focused on increasing ARPU through uh, improved viewability, uh, which uh, higher impact ad units and better lead capture, all of which we think will improve CPMs and, and general customer spend. And you've taken on relatively recently the local or the Australian franchise of Inc. magazine, which obviously is a sort of business publication. Um, what's the audience crossover there of uh, with, with Smart Company? And, wh- and what was the kind of the strategy behind getting in bed with Inc.? So... As people with my job title often say, uh, uh, we want to be in a leadership position in any category we're in. The reason why we want to be in a leadership position is it helps drive sustainability. I mean, beyond the obvious implication that improves revenue, it also decreases price elasticity. So it means that we spend less time negotiating on cost with um, with advertisers. Uh, we took out the 
contract with Inc. First of all, because we think it's a fantastic product. It's a product that I read and, and plenty of the editorial staff read. So we, we really believed in the Inc. product overall. We felt it was a good complement to what Smart Company was doing already. So Smart Company does a very good job of speaking about Australian new, uh, Australian business news and entrepreneurs and case studies of what's going on in this market. What Inc. does a very good job of is uh, teasing out some more of the wider business lessons from what's going on in the market. So talking about emotional intelligence, talking about an entrepreneur's journey. So it, sometimes analogies are a fairly lazy way of thinking about things. But I think if you look at the best news products, they often have that balance of sort of lean forward news and then lean back kind of business I'm trying to think of the right language to use, maybe. So so the thing I reach for is the FT, where you have the FT's front pages, and then you also have the weekend supplement. And I think that's there's a sort of digital version of that going on with the way we bundle Inc. and Smart Company. So you go to Smart Company for the news, and then you go for Inc. for the insights. And with Inc., does it, does it matter what proportion is US-originated content versus Australian? Because I, I think one of the observations I'd make is – you know, certainly when I was sort of looking a bit more deeply at Inc for, you know, researching today's conversation, it felt like there wasn't that much Australian content sitting on the homepage. Most of it felt like it had actually come from, I'm guessing, the US. Um, do you, what are your kind of aspirations around that mix? We want to do a lot more Australian content. So I think that is a, a what you've just said is a statement of fact. Most of what is on Inc. currently is from our American partners. We will invest more. It is the nature of us being a small business and us reacting to the market that we just need to be a little bit careful with investment right now. So we are going to invest more in catering Inc. more to the local market. There are real tangible things going on right now that will result in more local market content going on on the income page but it is just it's a, it's an issue of sequencing and budgets like we, we, we just need to we will do that but, but but we'll do it in the right order okay let's briefly go on to the mandarin um a, a, another business model again and i um I suppose one, one, and before we dive into the Mandarin, um, I suppose I'm also interested. I, I hear what you say about the, and absolutely, you did not use these words, and I, I know there can be a negative connotation, but the the cookie cutter potential cookie cutter approach of, you know, the the, the site and the technology can be broadly the same for everything. Um, but I suppose I find myself thinking about you've got Smart Company, you've got Inc. We've already talked about Crikey and we'll talk about it more in a moment. And then you've got the Mandarin, yet another different business model. Yeah. I mean, the Mandarin is awesome. So the Mandarin, like if you were to think of a trade title that had the, the like wheels sit here in our little media kind of bubbles thinking about what a good model looks like the mandarin's awesome so the mandarin uh does about 70 percent of its revenue from ads it's actually so right now it's probably about 65 percent of its revenue from advertising about 35 percent from subscriptions we set up the subscription the premium subscription product four years ago it has 
just very, very steadily grown month to month, quarter on quarter, year on year. It's a high yield product. So we we sell it at $440 a year. We discount in year one cautiously. We're sort of, we believe it deserves $440. There is no good competitor. I mean, a couple of other things periodically pop up and people probably out there in market telling telling people they're building an alternative to the Mandarin. It's nonsense. Like there is nothing like the Mandarin. The Mandarin is laser focused, not on politics, but on senior public sector individuals. So if you work in the public sector, if you work in the APS and you're the um, upper echelons, you you read the Mandarin. Uh, it's like umbrella or, or unmade. I should say probably like if you're if you're that's fine we're, we're allowed to say the M word you're to say the M word. <laughs> right I mean if you work in advertising in Australia you 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 read Mumbrella and I, I think increasingly you you read Unmade but but you read Mumbrella now if you if you work in the APS and you're senior you read the Mandarin we have a phenomenal editorial team who I mean if you take Robodet for an, as an example. Every big media outlet was working very hard to cover Robodet and figure out what it meant to the general Australian public. It's a very crowded market, lots of extremely good journalists working at different outlets looking for original uh, ways to cover that. No one else was thinking about what it means for senior public sector workers. And Robodet is the biggest thing that's happened to the public sector in the last 10 years. So we, like, we we have a leadership position. We're very proud of that. It is growing, and and it's incredibly sustainable because uh, we can create content. We can invest aggressively in content that costs us a lot of money because we have this really strong subscription model, which makes it very sustainable. And then conversely, I, it would shock you to know that a lot of advertisers are very keen to reach decision makers within the government, and so we have a healthy growing advertising product within the Mandarin as well. Now, I don't consider two revenue lines to be strong revenue diversification. So we're now building other products as well. Um, but I mean, on the point of st a standardized approach to product, the Mandarin would not be as strong as it is and will not be as strong as we want it to be if we don't focus all our resources on building the the best possible way to as i said drive people to sign up to emails to give them the insight they really want to recommend things that they need to uh, figure out the right price to charge for advertising and all of those things all of that knowledge comes from our central operating team um, a challenge we have as, as being a much smaller media business than the news or nine or whatever is that they have the opportunity to learn more because they they experience more interactions with their customers. So it, it is both a strength of ours that we're very focused on this operating model, but a challenge because we 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 really have to get very very good at the, at the side of what we're doing. Now the comparison I make is. I think of those big guys as like retail banks, like they're, they're huge and they've got loads of customers and, and they've got loads of revenue and, and good margin and all those sorts of things. 
my pitch, and I, I, I love many people who work at those businesses, and they have many great people who work there, but I don't think they have the talent density of what we have. And so as a result, I, I refer to them as the retail banks and us as the, hedge, us as the hedge fund. And so we're building a small group of people who are working incredibly hard and are absolute nerds for what they do. Like people show me stuff every day that I'm shocked at how good it is and how quickly they've produced it. And as a result, my money is on private media being a much bigger company in, in two years or five years or 10 years or whichever time horizon you want to think about. Let's move on to Crikey. And I suppose the landmark issue for Crikey of recent months was the defamation case instituted by Lachlan Murdoch. Is there anything looking back you would have done differently? Not really. I mean, I learned we as an organization learned a great deal going through the legal process so there are some things that i can't really say that i i would have i don't know like copy your lawyers on 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 every email you send because there are benefits to that um as in they're legally protected from disclosure to the other party well if that's the inference you want to draw from my comments then that's that's entirely on you tim but uh i i i can't think of things significant errors that we made i think there was a huge number of errors that their side made and their legal team made i should probably be careful before i accidentally defame a defamation barrister and their team but probably for the best yeah probably um but no i can't think of things significant like it's just a hard question to answer because it was such a chaos like in normal business you can look at things and say we this was our plan and we executed and we tried to be very strategic and structured in how we approach things. Litigation is a very intense emotional battle that draws a significant personal cost. And so it is, it's hard to reflect on that without going into emotional things about, um, I don't know, like how we spoke to, uh, I don't know, whatever. But it, it, no, nothing significant I can think of. Yeah, look, I, I, I it's an interesting point you raised, though, because, you know, a couple of weeks back we interviewed, or a few weeks back on this podcast, we chatted to Nick McKenzie at the end of the Ben Robert Smith case, which is since gone to appeal, so we'll be careful about getting into the detail. But clearly it had taken a huge toll on him personally and he talked about having to get some um, psychological help you know with a professional as part of that process um you you were very much the kind of the the, the point person for private media in this case how did you deal with it and have you successfully personally moved on from it so before i answer that question i i do want to just say that there is something like a fair criticism of Crikey and perhaps even me personally or our organization is that sometimes we we can be grandiose or performative in what we do. Now, I don't agree with that. Like, I, I think we're always acting in good faith and we're, we're doing our best to draw our attention to the things that we think matter. 
but in 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 light of that me being aware of that criticism and me understanding that people can make it i do want to just draw a distinction between what nine and nick went through which was a multi-year organization which ran at the cost of i mean reportedly 25 million dollars and went to trial and went the whole way through trial and dealt with alleged war crimes and what we went through it is it's a different it, it might be might be the same category but it's a very different magnitude of thing chip legrand who is a, a journalist i read I, I think i read everything that chip writes when our case first came out he writes for the age he works for the age thank you he referred to our case as a stush of inanities i think which i thought was and i have told him this i thought it was grossly unfair that he just completely dismissed what a small independent outlet was going through but in light of of, of, of chip's comments i just wanted to to recognize that there is a difference between one and three but it's it's very intense litigation it is very intense and for me on a personal level there was a a clear difference between the first four months when I was not a defendant. So for those four months, I was worried about the business and I was thinking about, I I was absolutely convinced we were doing the right thing, but there was one order of distance between me personally and the case. And then in uh, just before Christmas, Lachlan Murdoch and his legal team extended the case and added Eric and me to the case as personal. This is Eric Beach, your proprietor. And I'm amazed we've got this far without talking more about Eric. Um, added Eric and, and me as personal defendants. And it, and that was definitely a change. Uh, it, I, I'm not a good sleeper. I, I like many people, have... I mean, everyone just has mental health. I have mental health in the same way I have sort of physical health. Um, And it introduced a degree of stress to my mental health. I actually haven't listened to the episode with Nick. It sounds like he referred to professional help that he got, and and I got professional help as well. And and there were certainly dark days. There were periods when I couldn't sleep and I had to have help with that. And there were periods when I was speaking to people and... And there you go. Oh, on a on a personal level, I, who was I listening to the other day? Oh, I listened to Alistair Campbell on a podcast, and uh, the Rest is Politics podcast, or indeed the Rest is Politics. Yeah, and he said something that I have separately said as well, which is I don't think the purpose of life is happiness. I think if you optimize your life towards happiness, you're going to end up with I, that, that, that's people's choice, but it's, it's not the way I choose to live my life. We felt this case was very important. We felt that Lachlan Murdoch choosing to sue someone, choosing to sue an organization and the journalists that work for it for engaging in mild hyperbole about the events of January the 6th and saying that Fox News might have some responsibility for the perilous state of the American democracy. Him choosing to sue us over that is something worth talking about. And so what what I had at 3 a.m. is the cast iron belief that we were doing the right thing. It It is absurd that we shouldn't be able to say that out loud in public. So 
whilst it caused me a, a huge degree of personal unhappiness and a huge degree of anxiety and stress, it, I felt with absolute certainty that it was the correct moral action to take. Now, one of the one of the pieces of commentary around at the time, and that included from I think from Lachlan Murdoch's side of the 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 legal case, was that this was some sort of cynical exercise by Crikey and private media to drive subscription revenue. One of the many honours in my life is being accused of commercial opportunism by the Murdochs. I, I think that's amusing. If we were to engage in a legal battle with a billionaire. My view was always that it had to be sustainable. My 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 first ethical responsibility is to make sure that private media is still around in a few years' time. We we felt very strongly this was the right ethical action to take. And we felt that if we were going to do it, it had to be, we had to be able to see it all the way through to trial. The central insight from us from at the very beginning, to be honest, and I'm probably being a little bit loose-lipped here, was that we didn't think he would go to trial. And so if we were to pursue this course of action, if we were to refuse to apologise, if we were to put the article back up and then refuse to take it down, we had to know that we could make it to trial. We didn't know how many people would um, pay into our GoFundMe. We didn't know how many people would subscribe as a result. But we we, we couldn't fight with one hand behind our back. The, the one smart thing I think they did is they, they really lent into that narrative. And what they were trying to do is kneecap our capacity to make it to trial. Uh, they failed. We We were prepared to make it to trial. They weren't. I think that's probably the end of that. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I'll, I'll have one more question on 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 the the, the 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 case or sort of news court before we we move on. And I I might I, I and I suppose but, but quickly before I do that, I'll, I'll I, I guess I'll, I'll I'll challenge or put a statement around your your interpretation that their motivation was to to kneecap your ability to do that. So I suppose it's just worth observing that we can't know what was in their minds. But you're obviously welcome to, you know, make that assumption that maybe what was there. Um, so you, you, you did work for News Corp. You worked at Dow Jones. Um, Eric Beecher was uh, Rupert Murdoch editor with 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 the Herald. Um, and, and and I suppose something I've seen in Australia is former News Corp employees sometimes are the most passionate in how they talk about News Corp. Um, so I wonder what. What didn't you see then that you do see now? So I worked at Dow Jones, which at that point wasn't part of News Corp, uh, in my late 20s. I worked almost exclusively on the Wall Street Journal, which at that point had fairly recently been acquired by the Murdochs. At that point, still seemed to have a very strong division between uh, its editorial work and the interests of its owner. I I don't think I'd work for them again, probably because I'm a little bit further on in my life, a little bit further on my career and potentially have more options in front of me. Uh, And it's my personal opinion that, that maybe that division isn't as tight as it used to be. It was interesting when the 
uh, when the Dominion stuff came out, it, it, it took a while for the journal to talk about it. This was the voting system in the US where there was the, the legal case from Dominion against uh, Fox News. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I worked for a Murdoch-owned outlet for a few years in my late 20s. Uh, which at that point was considered to be an outlier in their empire and that it wasn't one that they were perceived to be interfering particularly with editorially. As I said, I don't think I do that now. Uh, As you point out, Eric worked with them for a number of years, about 30 or 40 years ago. It's sort of challenging for me to... Eric is a man I, I have huge admiration for, so I don't want to say too much on his behalf though it's noticeable that he probably has invested more time and resources than anyone else in Australia to improving the diversity of media in Australia. And that has certainly become the his life mission, or my impression it is his life mission. Well, he won a gold walkley for exactly that, didn't he? Well, absolutely. And he's, he's invested decades and decades into it. And so, as I said, he's a man I... I have pretty much unending um, admiration for. Uh, so we'll, I'm, I'm massively running over time as well. There's so much more I would have loved to get to, but I'll, I'll ask our um, uh, the question we always ask everybody um, at the end of the podcast. Um, what would your supporters say about you and what would your critics say about you? I suspect my... I mean, it's interesting. I can actually answer this question with a degree of specifics because we're, we do a very formal annual review process and much of that is two-way so i i i i mean I, I i hope i wouldn't categorize the people who report to me as as either supporters or, or detractors but i i know what they have the feedback i've been given so that might be a good way to do this in a sort of meaningful way uh the feedback i get from the people i admire some of the people i admire most to those reporting to me is that uh, I can, um, uh, I don't have a temper, um, uh, I mean well, and um, there seems to be a degree of confidence in the vision that me and that we, we have worked on collectively. That, that's probably my best way of sort of not, I don't want to say too many, it's hard for me to say positive things. I'm an Englishman, I don't like talking about myself. Um I'm far more comfortable talking about the things that I that I think are wrong with me. So my product flaws, the feedback I get on that, are that um, I can be hard to get time with. I can be distracted. I'm not someone who it, th- th- there's a degree of um, like, like certainly I'm a hypocrite in that I believe very passionately that good media organisations have people who go very very deep on hard problems. I'm not someone who goes very very deep on i mean in my personal life i do go very deep on things and the the, the sort of interests i have that i invest years in but as ceo um i I tend to dot around stuff and so that is feedback i get distracted um uh, hard to get time with and uh lacks good hair well will you've been very generous with your time in this conversation thank you very much for joining me it was awesome. Thanks, Tim. I'll be back with more soon. Unmade. Um,
Podcast Edit by Abe's Audio.